This is Factual America. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood. Each week I watch a hit documentary and then talk with the filmmakers and their subjects. A chance encounter between charismatic actress Lana Clarkson and legendary music producer Phil Spector ended in a fatal shooting that forever warped his legacy. How could one of the most important figures in 20th century pop music also be a monster? The four-part docuseries peels back the layers of one of Hollywood's most tragic crimes to paint a more human portrait of Lana Clarkson and the deeply disturbed man convicted of her murder. Join me as I discuss Lana Clarkson and Phil Spector with Emmy-nominated filmmakers Sheena Joyce and Don Argon, the directors of Spector. We assess the troubled legacy of one of the legends of the recording industry while celebrating the life of Lana Clarkson, one of the unsung heroes of Hollywood. Stay tuned. Sheena Joyce, Don Argot, welcome to Factual America. How are things with you? Excellent. Thanks for having us. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's great to have you on. We're uh, we're talking about Spectre, the um, new Showtime and Sky documentaries docu series. It's been on Showtime for a little while now, and it premiered uh, uh, last Sunday here in the UK on Sky. So uh, welcome again, and it's 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 a pleasure to have you on. Um, Thank you. Yeah, Sheena. So I mean, uh, it may seem obvious given the title. Uh, but uh, how we usually start things is ask our filmmakers, what is the film all about? So what is Spectre all about? Maybe give us a bit of a synopsis for our listeners and viewers who haven't had a chance to, to see it yet. Certainly. Um, Spectre is a four-part documentary series where we re-examine the life and legacy of Phil Spectre. I think we do it kind of through the, the lens of a post-Me Too movement where we try and contextualize um, the events that um, led to the night of January 3rd, 2003, when, I'm sorry, February 3rd, 2003, when um, Lana Clarkson was murdered in his uh, Pyrenees Castle home. Mm -hmm. And we try very hard to make Lana Clarkson more than just a footnote in the Phil Spector story and to kind of bring her out as a fully fleshed out human being. Yeah. And uh, I... I, I can't believe I'm asking this question, but I also, I was talking to our producer here in this studio where I'm at, and he doesn't know who Phil Spector is. So there's a generation out there who doesn't know who Phil Spector is. Maybe you can, uh, uh, either one of you, Don, uh, what, 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 what might genera- younger generations not know? Who well, is I, Phil I, I think, you know, everything has to be contextualized given the time that it took place. And I think in the yeah. world that we live in now, where information is so readily available, I feel like people know less now than they did. <laughs> like, uh, mm. even though there's more access to information, I feel like the 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 retention, the retention, or the or the you know the fr- frankly, like you like you said, I think Phil Spector is a great example of someone who uh, probably missed two generations already of people because yeah. they uh, you know of, of the time that he kind of came up. But you know, quickly, uh, he he was a you know kind of a phenom. You know, songwriter in the in the late '50s really took to songwriting and the music of the the day that was happening at the time with with Elvis and you know that that kind of like singer songwriter uh, you know emerging you know um, you know business that was happening in the late '50s going into the early '60s before the Beatles kind of changed everything. But in that uh, period of time, in like 1957, 58 
things were single driven, they were song driven, they weren't necessarily artist driven. And Phil came along and wrote a song uh, called To Know Him Is To Love Him. And I think even though there might be generations of people that don't know who Phil Spector is, I would guarantee that because his music is so ubiquitous and being used in films and advertising that they would probably know certain songs, but his first song was called to know him was to love is to love him. And it was like a, a very earnest, beautiful, like very t of that time period, a very melancholy kind of longing, sad song. Uh, and that was, and I think he was 18 years old at the time, 17 or 18. He was, you know, just graduated high school. Um, so that became a huge hit and in turn kind of launched Phil on this trajectory to be, he didn't really want to be somebody in the front, uh, you know, the, as the artist, he wanted to be the producer kind of pulling the strings in the background, whether that was orchestrating, writing, or, you know, uh, bringing writers in to, to, um, to, to work with his new stable of artists, which were the Crystals, which is the Ronettes, you know, so everybody knows, you know, to do Ron Ron, uh, be my baby. Uh, hmm. You've lost that loving feeling. I mean, the, the the list goes on and on and on of the songs that this man was kind of behind and responsible for. So, and it wasn't until the Beatles came along in, in the early sixties that really reshaped the focus of things being producer driven and more band driven. And that kind of, hmm. in a way, kind of, changed Phil's, you know, trajectory of what he had to do to survive in this industry. And then ironically ended up, uh, you know, coming in to save and salvage the last Beatles record, which was Let It Be in, in a legendary way that everybody kind of walked away and threw their hands up after these, everything was recorded and Phil came in and kind of made sense of it all. So he's responsible for, you know, Let It Be. So, you know, he's he had a very prolific career, but really by 1980 and he worked with the Ramones, uh, that was that was it. He was pretty much done. So from 1980 on, you know, he if you didn't know him, you know, in you know in the 70s or 80s, likely in the, in the 90s and 2000s, you probably didn't hear too much about Phil Spector. He was one of the first producers as stars, and he created a signature sound called the Wall of Sound yeah, yeah. Um, that he became known for. And it kind of didn't matter which artist um, it was that he was working with. It was this signature sound that was made famous. Yeah. I think, um, well, th well, thank you for that. I mean, I, I think uh, anyone who's wants to know more, I'm sure you, you can Google these things and you'll find them. I mean, it's uh, the wall. Of, I mean, he was quite the innovator, right? And Correct. with this wall yeah. of sound and what he did and... There have been documentaries, not even specifically about him, but related to this. You know, the Wrecking Crew, and mm -hmm. we've had um, we had a documentary on the show program called Streetlight Harmonies, which is all about doo wop and some of the many people you interviewed or are on there. And uh, your exec producers, Jonathan and Simon Chin, have been on this program to talk about the Tina, and uh, you know he uh, what many might consider one of the greatest songs ever recorded. River Deep, Mountain High, you know, and that's, uh, is, is, we were talking before we started recording, that's a huge hit over here. And yeah. uh, and he had his in the UK, and he had his hands in on that. And the one thing I'm thinking of is, there's a, in that doo-wop document, they always, all of them say, well, things were going really well, and then the Beatles came across on that plane, and we knew mm -hmm. that was the end, basically, mm -hmm. for us. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. But Spectre's actually on that plane. 
I mean, <laughs> yeah, Woodpecker's literally on the plane with the Beatles coming over. They were they were huge fans of of the Crystals and the Ronettes, yeah. uh, and that's how he started his relationship with them. So he was over on that flight um, and did kind of see the writing on the wall, <laughs> yeah. I guess, somewhere yeah. over the Atlantic. And as for someone who liked to be the center of attention, he's not anymore. Right. And uh, yeah, as you say, he uh, um, yet. I mean, that's the amazing thing. Not only uh, did the last Beatles album, but then even does John Lennon's albums and Imagine and those. George Harrison as well. George Harrison, all these, uh, was it Concert for Bangladesh? All that that stuff. He's he's got his hand in on that. But even by then, he's starting to be a shadow of his of of his former self now. um, But as you've already mentioned, and I think that's what's I've I really thought was uh, one of the things that was really excellent about this docu series is that. Um, there is another person who's inextricably linked with him now, and maybe we should talk a little bit. And I and and you do, you give her you. It, I think it was very good. I mean, a lot of these, personally, a lot of these things will say they do look at the victim and they do talk. But I do feel like it was, you know, as as much as it should be, there was an equal a- attention to both both yeah. parties, uh, especially because of the damage that has been done to her reputation in the past. So maybe we can talk about who Lana Clarkson was. Sure. Um, Lana Clarkson was more than Phil Spector's victim. She was a successful working actress. Um, She was a a, a daughter and a sister and a friend who by all accounts brought light and joy into the lives of everyone she met. She was labeled by the media at the time as B-movie actress Lana Clarkson. Right. That that moniker came in every headline, in every news piece, in every television story about her. Um, and it kind of served to paint this narrative that that she was somehow disposable or or less than. Um, on the wrong side of 40, looking for fame, you know, Mm. desperate and went home with this crazy man. Um, At least here in the States, that was the impression that was given. Um, So it was important for us to get to know the real Lana Clarkson from those who knew and loved her best. And to, as I said, make her more than a footnote in Phil's story. And Mm. what we found was that she um, was very successful as a working actress. If, 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 you know, there's this I also this um, feeling that if you're not a star or a millionaire, you're somehow a failure. But she had made her living as an actor her whole life. Um, you know, she's and- in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I mean, that was like you know these sort of things. I mean, it's like all these cultural touch points from from the yes, she was the, the barbarian queen. I mean, she was yeah. in a of very Roger famous- Corman sh- films. You got Roger Corman in, in interviewed oh, yes. on this stuff. And yeah. she was in a ton of, of TV shows. And, you know, speaking of, of seeing the writing on the wall, she, as she approached 40, she knew that she wasn't going to be cast as yeah. the ingenue anymore and was very clever and reinventing herself and started to get into comedy and stand-up comedy and um, started to, to book roles as more of a character actor. Um, and in fact, you know, she had this, this terrible accident that she broke Mm. both of her wrists and was sidelined for a long time. And so she took this job at the house of blues to kind of get 
back into the world again. Um, at the time, the Foundation Room was the place to be in Hollywood. It was it was a very hard to get into. You know, the 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 hottest of the hot people in LA would go there, and she cleverly got a job. You know, working um, the list basically mm -hmm. at the Foundation Room. That's how she came into contact with Phil Spector. But she was always thinking about next steps in her career. Um, and, and like I said, on a personal level was, was smart and funny and engaged and, um, was thinking of the future. She had gigs booked the next week. So it was important for us to kind of dispel this myth that she was this washed up B movie actress yeah. and really show her for the woman she was. Yeah. And I think, and as, as what this, uh, film's also about is, uh, it's chance encounters, right? And timing, uh, as Phil and says, timing is, is many, Phil's. many times. It's timing, and and as you'll see in the series, there are these these moments that you look at. What if you know? What if Phil's father hadn't committed suicide when Phil was nine years old? Would his right. family have moved to Los Angeles? What if right. Lana's father hadn't died in a mining accident when she was a young girl? Would her family have moved to Los Angeles? What what if Lana hadn't broken her wrists? Um, would she Doing have- Dancing Irish dancing with a bunch of kids right. at a Christmas party. Uh, with little party. kids yeah. at a Christmas yeah. party. Yeah. Would she have had to take that job at the House of Blues? What yeah. if she had recognized him? You'll, you'll see in the series, she doesn't know who he is when he yeah. comes to the door. Um, right before closing time and actually mistakes him for an old woman um, and kind of spends the rest of the night trying to make up for that. Yeah. Um, which is, if she hadn't done that, would she have Would she have agreed to have one more drink with him at the end of the night? There, It's all about timing. And, and Phil was a little obsessed with timing in his own life as well. Yeah, and I think, I mean, one thing else that comes across too about her, which I was impressed is that it's, you know, she's she's not just not a victim. She's a very strong, yes. resilient yes. woman who's savvy. trying to do th savvy, who's trying to do things the right way. Right. You know, uh, as you say, in the light of Me Too and all that that sort of stuff in terms of how she's trying to make her career and what she yeah. had to face and her yes. friends have talked. I mean, it's it's uh, and like you said, bad accident gets back up on her on her feet and says, OK, mm -hmm. I'll work at the House of Blues you know, mm -hmm. and try to make my way. Um, it, so, and then as you say, I had, had plans for the future. Um, I mean, as we, I think some of us who are old enough know even before this happened, there were these little stories, these snippets you'd hear about Spectre and things, but uh, he did have quite the, as you, the euphemism used to be colorful history, uh, but <laughs> didn't he? I mean, what is, as, as it came out and it came out in the trial, I mean, this was not some being in some sort of situation like this as he made it, you know, we, we don't need to go into the details of the trial. You go, you do, I think it's especially episodes three and four, but uh, uh, he had this history of abuse and threatening people. I mean, he's quite, uh, I mean, what about, there's that Leonard Cohen incident that I, I wasn't aware of, but yeah. maybe, maybe that's a good way of illustrating. Well, yeah. What, I mean, I, I think one of the things as, you know, if when, whenever you get, introduced to a story like this it's like well you know what what's your base level understanding of it and for me like i knew a lot about phil Spector as someone who's passionate about music and specific 
types of music and the Beatles. And, you know, so I, I knew a lot about Bill and then, you know, you have to, and then you go through life and you hear stories here. Oh yeah. That, that, that guy's crazy. He like, you know, held the Ramones at gunpoint at, right. at, at his house and like he locked his wife in a basement and had a glass casket. And you, you start to hear all these stories and, you know, before the internet, you know, you know, we're, that urban stuff legend. yeah that that stuff became is like kind of urban legend and it just kind of passed on and that, yeah, that's how it's yeah. kind of frankly morph into like you know he pulled a gun to like you know he blew a guy's head off one time you know what i mean yeah, yeah. so yeah. things yeah. go a little crazy that way but i think for us going into it it was important to like you know almost like forget what we knew or we, what we thought we knew it's like let's look at this for real let's dispel rumors that you know because marky ramon famously has said you know he never pulled guns on us that i don't know where that story came from and so mm. you know you hear that and you're like all right well maybe the other stuff isn't true and then right. and you talk to darlene love and she's like oh yeah no phil came in the studio with a gun yeah, and, he had guns all the time yeah it's that old snl skit that we were talking about the buckwheat one with uh right <laughs> was it, do you believe he killed buckwheat oh yeah it's all you ever talked it's about. all you ever talked about so yeah, it's like, <laughs> but i but i think that there is you know we wanted to get set the record straight you know you have four hours to spend right. uh to really get to know and understand who these two people were you know what went on in their lives that led them there Let, let's get past the kind of salacious stuff and mm. the big hair which is of course everybody's like oh yeah he was the afro you're going to talk about that it's like yeah we're going to talk about it but it's we got four hours because it's like going to take like two minutes of, <laughs> of right, of right. So you know, we wanted to get in there and talk to people that had firsthand knowledge. And you know, we were speaking with Rob Fabroni and yeah. a famous producer, and uh, was a friend of Lana's. You know, I you know crazily he had uh, this connection with Phil Spector and Lana, but his connection with Phil was more. You know, when he was a young kid, he kind of snuck into recording studios to see if he can learn, you know, from, you know, people that were working at the time. And, you know, he sat in on a couple of Phil, Phil Spector sessions when he was young. Uh, but he told us this story, which is secondhand, uh, which is pretty good, you know, without getting it firsthand. But he was there uh, or he got the story directly from Leonard, who said that, you know, Phil was... Uh, you know, they were working in the studio together and I think they were both in kind of a really, you know, vulnerable spot. They both men had gone through divorces and dealing with their drinking and alcohol and drugs or whatever. So they were probably both not in the best frame of mind uh, working together. But I think that's what attracted them to each other to begin working together anyway, because Leonard Cohen working with Phil Spector actually doesn't make any sense. And at all, <laughs> a uh, wall of sound for Leonard Cohen. <laughs> and if you listen to that record, it, it doesn't make any sense, frankly. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the public got bought it either. But uh, you know, the, the the story goes that you know they were working all day, and it was a long day, and they were tracking. And then you know Phil wanted Leonard to go in the booth and sing, and you know Leonard, you know, was like, yeah, you know what, Phil, let's do it tomorrow. I'm kind of beat tonight, and Phil insisted, and he's like no, we'll just do it tomorrow. And then, you know, Phil pulled a gun on him and said, go out there and, you know, sing the fucking song. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then of course the follow-up question is, uh, why the hell did Leonard Cohen come back the next day if he got a gun pulled on him? <laughs> and again, Rob says in the thing, I think, you know, it was exciting. He never felt that he was really in danger. He was like, 
this guy's a little off and this could be an interesting dynamic. And mm. as an artist, I guess you put yourself in that situation. It's like, all right, let's see where this crazy train goes, you know? And I think, uh, yeah. you know, so that's, that's that story, but that hadn't been really told before and, until we uh, got it from Rob. We also spoke to the lead detectives in the case who interviewed mm. Leonard Cohen directly. And so they had firsthand knowledge from yeah. Leonard of the story and he did corroborate it. Okay. Uh, so I know that that um, some people have come out and said that that never happened and that Leonard mm. said it never happened. But but we know from the detectives that he did say it was true to to Don's point. He also said he never felt truly threatened, but he did, in fact, confirm that Phil Spector mm. pulled a gun on him in the recording studio. Yeah, yeah. Um, he did it to, to John Lennon. He did it in a Darlene Love session. Um as as you'll see in the trial, he did mm -hmm. it to um, dozens of women uh -huh. over decades. So what is it about, um, particularly in the arts, this idea of the musical genius that mm. that that mental illness gets dismissed as artistic greatness? Um, mm. And how do we get to the point where Lana Clarkson is dead in, in February of 2003? You know, I think. I think this industry in particular is littered with stories like this. You just yeah. look at Will Cosby and uh, Harvey Weinstein and frankly, Kanye West these days. There's mm. something about artistic geniuses that get a pass for their mental illness. Um, but eventually the, you know, chickens come home to roost and bad things happen. I, I would also say it's, it's not just artistic genius, it's money. I mean, that's power. Well, Harvey Weinstein, yeah. I wouldn't say he's an artistic genius, but he's very powerful. Yeah, but there's also lots of extremely wealthy surgeons right. that don't go in the operating room and pull a gun. That it, I think there is something about the entertainment industry in particular that I I don't know what it is that, uh, that they get away with this kind of behavior. I think it yeah. is something about artists that are given a pass for, for crazy. Given a, you know, and I was gonna, I was gonna say let's go to break, but I'm not. But I think in terms of artists, I mean, I, I, there's examples. Uh, I mean, I've lived in this country for over 20 years now, and there's some even some British artists that are um, maybe our U.S. audiences wouldn't wouldn't know, but uh, um, who were considered geniuses themselves. They weren't entertainers, but then the truth comes out, and horrible stories about abuse and yes. things they've done to children and stuff yes. and it's like I, and so there's a I, I i i hear what you're saying i completely agree you know there's this the money element there's why do why these people give a pass but then there's also this element what is it about and obviously we're not saying all artists but there is a segment of an artistic community mostly almost all male uh that have these demons and yes. it's a and it's a it's not an easy one, I imagine. Maybe that's something we can talk about when we come back from the break. What if you have any insights you think on on what? Listen, you know, we all have we all have demons. Women have demons too, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we certainly don't have the reputation that the men do about pulling yeah. guns on. Other well, right, right. Yeah, but the tide's changing. Well, here's hoping. Don. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. All right, we'll be right back with uh, Sheena Joyce and Don Arga, directors of the new Showtime and Sky Documentaries docuseries, Spectre. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. 
check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with Sheena M. Joyce and Don Argot, directors of the new Showtime and Sky documentaries, docuseries, Spectre, about the troubled musical genius Phil Spectre and Lana Clarkson, who was a aspiring, more than aspiring actress mm-hmm. in Hollywood. Um, so we were talking about, well, I think maybe we, we kind of drew a line under that conversation about uh, <laughs> geniuses and uh, ma- well, I, male I, geniuses. I, I did want to add, there was one thing that I wanted to yeah. add to that, which I think, you know, and, and you know, when Sheena talks about doctors and lawyers and who might have their own demons, but they don't go into work and exhibit mm-hmm. those demons uh, yeah. or, or put it on display. But I think the art, the arts are different in the sense that we, they're not adherent to any kind of strict rules about like when you show up for work and what, you know, like as an artist, what you know, you don't have, you're not clocking in. Right. Yeah. So I think it takes people that are, that can't really work within that system and the confines of that system. Mm. They gravitate towards being able to be loose and free. And then I think you get more eccentric behavior in general, whether it's uh, legitimately people are off, you know, like with a bipolar with some kind of mental Mm. disorder, or they're just, they just don't think the way that everybody else thinks. And that's what we love about artists. And frankly, that's what we celebrate about artists, right? Is that, you know, that, Sometimes the the people that approach things are the innovators that 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 bring things to that that haven't been done before. And I think you put people like Phil Spector, you put the Beatles in that category. You know, you put a, a lot of artists that have had monumental impact in in our in in the world. But uh, as you know, when you get into this stuff and when you get into it on a granular granular level, you start to see that, like, yeah, you know, we we have done a poor job i think as a society elevating these people mm. and putting them on some kind of pedestal because they're always going to disappoint us whether it's what happens in the case of phil specter where you know he's a convicted murderer or in the case of harvey weinstein or bill cosby where these you know decades of sexual abuse and abuse mm. in general mm. have went unchecked um you know those are the things that we have to figure out how to either separate so that like, you know, as we talk about this now, and I think what the series opens up, it's like, how can you listen? Can you still listen to Phil Spector's music? Can you separate the art from the art? Can you listen to Michael Jackson anymore? Can you watch Miramax yeah. movies anymore? Yeah. Can you watch yeah. the Cosby show anymore? Like there's everybody's- Everybody's mind's different. It's gonna be different in that. But it does bring up this really complicated relationship that we have with people mm. we don't know, but with things that are uh, produced by these, artists that we that means so much to us i mean people you know when you're talking about phil specter's music and i think one of the things that was interesting we were talking to alan jackson he's trying to put a select a jury he's got to find people he was the lead prosecutor in the case right 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 he's trying to find jury members that are not that don't have you've lost that loving feeling as their wedding song that well, that's a sense. I would hope. I would hope they didn't choose that song. <laughs> be surprised. Song to dance. Be to. I, I, I think I've been to that wedding. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the same wedding that they have every breath you take as the wedding song. Yeah, right. Like, right. Weird stalker song. Right. So, right. Exactly. right. But the point yeah. being that Phil Spector's music was the soundtrack to people's lives. Yes. 
Yeah. And there are lots of memories made to this this beautiful music. Yeah. Um, and they had a hard time, the, the prosecution had a hard time finding jurors who were unaffected by music producer Phil Spector. I mean, I was going to eventually ask you this question, but I think I should ask it now since you've already sort of raised it. I mean, you pose this to some of the subjects in the film. I mean, how 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 are we to remember Specter, and how do you think we should remember him? And as for you as filmmakers, how would you answer your own question on, on that? Well, there's an interesting um, idea about legacy too, right? Yeah. It's not just how, how you remember someone. Um, hmm. Certainly when, when Phil died, there was a lot of criticism in, in the UK about how he was remembered, you know, um, in the headlines. Mm. Um, and I, I remember the apology had to be made because of how he was identified when, when he first died in the press. Um, personally, I am conflicted as, as I am about a lot of these, you know, yeah. musical and, and artistic geniuses. I, I, I can't, I, I can't listen to Michael Jackson music anymore, but I, you know, I still listen to Kanye West music. I haven't, Cross, it hasn't crossed that line for me yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's easier for people to listen to the music of Phil Spector because Phil was the producer and behind the scenes, and there's a, um, a you know a, a a layer removed there where you're you're hearing his work, but you're not necessarily hearing mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what Christmas would be without Phil Spector's Christmas album. You know, we just yeah. got through the holiday season, and and. Right you know, that music is, is everywhere. It's a very personal decision and it's a very individual line. And um, the series isn't going to end with a neat answer. And I, I don't have a very clean answer for that. It's just, it's it's a feeling you get and everyone's line is gonna be different, I think. Yeah. Hmm. And, and I think that's one of the things that as, you know, as, as filmmakers specifically doing documentaries, I mean, I think one of the, the success of, this series for us was being able to show both sides. A lot of times, you know, documentaries get criticized for being, you know, you know, too one-sided or, mm. you know, that, that they're, that they're, they're trying to make a case or, uh, you know, for, for one side or have some kind of agenda. And I think most filmmakers, most documentary filmmakers always try to get everybody to talk, right? Because that's, it doesn't help when you're just telling a one-sided thing. The problem is it usually becomes difficult when, you know, let's talk about if it's a, a film about uh, pollution, you know, obviously you have, you know, the environmentalist and you want the polluters too, right? But the polluters don't look at it as they have anything to gain by going on camera and saying their position. So it then in turn becomes this very one-sided, you, know, mm. uh, you know, documentary in the sense, mm. but for us, we wanted it. We certainly want came into it with the angle of wanting to uh, really flesh out Lana Clarkson as a full-fledged human being and kind of give her her dignity back. That was something that was important to us in the series. But to be able to talk to the prosecution and the defense, to be able to speak to the Specter side and the Clarkson side, to be it, it really does. It, it's it's you. I think you pointed it out earlier. It's like that when you talked about bringing Lana, you know, bringing the victim to life and these types of things, and everybody says they try to do it. I think what we did is that, but I also think people aren't necessarily used to seeing both sides represented and then having to draw their own conclusion. Mm. Uh, 
I think so so much so much that's happening in documentary right now, maybe because it, it is one sided uh, and they don't have the other side, or that the filmmakers came in to specifically drill down on a, a point that they wanted to make. But for us, it's more interesting and complex when you get to like watch a trial, hear from both sides, and then literally make up your own mind. Yeah. There are people that have come up to us and say, "I I think Bill's innocent." Okay. Cool. There have also been people that criticized us um, for contextualizing Phil's behavior as if that's somehow giving him a pass. I think it was important to us to present him as a as a multifaceted human being. He he was a loving and devoted father to his mm. daughter, Nicole. He was not to his other children. It doesn't negate the fact that he murdered Lana Clarkson, yeah. yet he was a loving and devoted father to his daughter nicole yeah. so you know it, it's it's funny that that we get criticized for things like that but but people are complex and can be more exactly. than one thing to many people and we strove to show that through the series yeah i mean i think that's a that's a, a very good point in that um as you say you want to present uh, Lana Clarkson in a fully fledged view and uh, I completely agree you've you know you've got everyone there you got the defense attorneys you've got the prosecutors you got the investigators you've got Nicole his daughter on there um, which I will say there's been some poor journalism but I saw a headline here that basically made it sound like this film was trying to show that Spectre was innocent it's not yeah, what no, you're doing that's not, so no, not what you're doing <laughs> at all I, I you know uh spoiler alert but uh, you know yeah. um you know but uh um the thing that comes out and it, it really I don't know maybe it was didn't really hit me towards the end but it's like Spectre's story also hasn't been fully told either yes. you know that's and that's and okay you're not yeah I can see where some people might try to say you're giving him a bit of a pass, but you're not excusing mental illness as a is a reason for why this happened. But it is true that he had mental yes. illness, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, and as you say, this time, you know, timing issue. It's mm -hmm. about the father's suicide. Um, we had R.J. Cutler on here one time about Belushi, and he was saying, you know, to know uh, some he was some philosopher writer. He was saying it said a you know, to know the man look at daddy and you know mm. i think there's a lot of element there's that element to it uh yeah so i mean is that is it's that, nice to blame the father instead of the mother <laughs> <laughs> well as, as, a, as a mom i appreciate i appreciate that yeah well our, our dad's yeah, uh, yeah. it's usually uh, blame the mom let's yeah let's well as a dad, dad i you guys. know because we we just kind of stand back and you know, i didn't you know um uh, that's me personally, obviously. I'm not only <laughs> denigrating myself, but uh, um, but why? I mean, is that part of me? Why make this film now? I mean, what got what? How did this project get started? Because uh, it's, it's a story that's been covered extensively in a way. Uh, yep. It's not an unknown crime um, for those who are living through it. It was uh, you couldn't get away from it in the U.S. Certainly, in terms of media coverage, right. even if it was just to talk about Spectre's hair. Um, but, uh, you know, why, 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 why make this now? How did this come about? Well, we, we were working, we were talking with, uh, Lightbox, Jonathan and Simon yeah. Chin, uh, uh, about another project, a music related project that unfortunately, you know, never took off, but we hit it off and had really good conversations while we were talking about this other project. And then, um, 
it was kind of like, I guess it was pre right before the pandemic. It was, yeah, it was uh, before the pandemic and they brought this up and. Um, they're like, do you have any interest in uh, Phil Spector, a docuseries um, or like, wow, that's, that's actually an interesting idea. With James Marsh. With James Marsh right, who's coming, right. coming on to EP uh, with John and Jonathan and Simon. And, um, you know, for us, we have to ask ourselves the same question. Why now? And why uh, him? And why him? And what yeah. can we bring to the table that hasn't already been brought to the table? We're not interested in rehashing, you know, yeah. another Phil Spector doc just to make it current and say the same things and really not, mm. you know, get, get anywhere uh, interesting. So as we start to dig in and as we start to look at and do research at that time, Phil was actually still alive. He was in mm. prison. Uh, and there was discussions about, Hey, is this a film where we try to get, you know, Phil in yeah, the, jail, yeah. the jailhouse interview, you know, for, for, you know, where he's at to reflect, is that what this is? Um, you know, and we kind of kicked that around a little bit and you can't hinge a, a, a project on, that level of unknown yes you know a would he do it and b would the prison even allow it so like that mm. seemed like that was something that we should we could hinge a narrative on but as we started to look through the research specifically uh, i knew a lot about his musical career but not as much about the trial obviously we lived through it but it was it's you know 2000 you know 20 2019 2003 it's kind of like in a lot of people's yeah. recent memory which is a positive uh, which also means there's a lot of footage and that kind of stuff. So from yeah. a documentary archival standpoint, that's a positive. Um, but yeah, it was really looking into the trial and seeing B-movie actress, Lana Clarkson, you know, over the hill, Pastor Prime, desperate. You wrong know, side of 40. Wrong side of 40. You know, <laughs> yeah, as yeah. we started to dig in, we're like, this is, nobody knows this story. And let, I think, you know, there is... Uh, an interesting story to now look back with, you know, the, the events of Me Too and re-examining, you know, behavior that was not that long ago uh, through that lens. And so we felt that like the Lana Clarkson's part of it was significant and different enough that we could still retell the Phil mm -hmm. history story, but in a way that would resonate a little bit more. I think we leaned into well, not just retell, but maybe maybe uncover some new information, maybe contextualize mm. his behavior in light of the events in, you know, in January, or I keep saying January, in February, because we're in January now, February 3rd, 2003. Um, but what, what, what happened in each of these individuals' lives that they were on these seemingly parallel tracks that then caused them to intersect that night at the House of Blues? How, how did they get there? How did we as a society get there? And what has happened mm -hmm. since? So timing-wise, it felt like the right time to re-examine the life and legacy of Phil Spector and to reintroduce Lana Clarkson as a real person to audiences. And, and I also think what happens here, like making doc, docs, you know, there, there's a there's a big discovery process and the discovery process actually doesn't stop until you're done shooting. And then it mm. still can keep going, going with a new piece of archival, whether it's audio or video that might reshape or reframe something. But early on, you know, we were able to, you know, acquire these cassette tapes from Mick Brown, yeah. who I feel like once once there was that. The Telegraph article that really became almost the impetus for mm. Phil to uh, kind of be. I mean, talk about timing. 
Talk yeah. about timing. And this is a guy who's a recluse for, you know, 20 plus years. And, you know, Mick and the, the, the editor at the Telegraph decide like, hey, whatever happened to that crazy music producer, Phil Spector? Right. Yeah. And then literally six weeks after that interview, the death of Lana Clarkson. So we felt like we that was really interesting to be able to kind of come in with that, uh, you, you know, with that kind of like present day component almost of, you know, this you know, this guy who has the last Phil Spector interview had the cassette tapes, you know, listening to those tapes, it's extraordinary. Like he's yeah. clearly vulnerable. He's clearly like being, you know, very candid and, and very honest. And, um, you know, and then obviously the events that transpire and then that bring Mick, the journalist into it almost as like, wait, did I cause this by hmm. writing this article? And, you know, speaking to Vikram later, he, yeah. you know, again, this is not. Who's a documentary filmmaker who, who shot with Phil during the trial. Right. Which we were able to like interview yeah. him and use some of his footage, but you know, to Vikram's take on it, which is, again, cannot be a hundred percent, you know, uh, uh, confirmed or, you know, but his idea that Phil read this article and in Mick's mind that he flipped out and like killed his wife or his assistant at the time, that wasn't the case. But what that article maybe did do was, made him go out of that night on a bender and made him go out and like mm. you know, try to like suppress shit or like whatever that was going on. Cause he didn't go out a lot. So yeah. it's all like, we keep going back to this theme of timing and the what ifs. And there's so many in this story that were really kind of remarkable uh, that we, a lot of times you, you work really hard as a storyteller to connect all these dots, but they were all there. They were all there. The dots were all yeah, there. They were all there. And, and I do want to just add one more thing about how lucky we were to get some amazing archival mm. um, Mick Brown's audio tapes. So we hear Phil Spector's voice. Um, amazing. We, you know, we had incredible access to both the Spector side and the Clarkson side, the prosecution and the defense, the lead detectives. We were able to get um, an audio tape that a uniformed officer um, the night of the murder at the scene put mm -hmm. a little recorder on the banister of the staircase right. and was able to record Phil as he was talking to the officers who mm -hmm. were who were trying to figure out what was going on and then eventually arresting him and bringing him in for for questioning. So you you hear Phil's voice the night of the murder. Yeah. Um, we we had incredible archival. And so even though Phil has since passed, he's very present in this film yeah. and you, you get to see him and hear his voice and 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 hear from him directly. I think, uh, you know, we always talk about never before seen, but definitely never before heard. Uh, certainly. certainly it certainly applies and I think is that true with I mean it just as you noted I mean I was wondering because maybe I missed it but I, I don't know if he explicitly says it but does Mick Brown did he really think he caused his Mick article Brown really did think, think he caused Lana Clarkson's murder he he had he had interviewed Phil for the the, the Telegraph um, six mm. weeks prior had promised Phil that he would send along um, right. an advanced copy of the article um it happened to to his understanding arrive at phil's house the morning of the murder so when he went into the telegraph offices um the next day you know uh february 4th someone said to him what did you do to phil specter and yeah, he's well, like that, what are you talking yeah. what are you talking about and he's like well I, he like killed his assistant or something i don't know so for the longest time mick did feel responsible he found out later that um that the FedEx was was unopened. Um, oh. 
So he he doesn't now believe that he kind of triggered that. But Vikram, uh, it's his understanding that Phil was faxed a copy of the article. And right, so even right. though he hadn't opened that FedEx and seen mm. the, you know, the, the physical copy of the of the Telegraph magazine, um, that he did get to read the story and see the headline. And that did prompt him to go mm. on a bender. Phil has these moments in his life, um, long, long stretches where he's he's he had been diagnosed as as um, being bipolar and he was really good about taking his medication, but you can't mix the meds with alcohol. And so he would have these these stretches of lucidity and then he would something would happen and he would either go off his meds or combine it with alcohol and and trouble would ensue and the night of lana's death he went on a super hardcore drinking bender throughout hollywood that ended the night at the house of blues where he you know met lana clarkson um so i i don't I don't know if Phil actually got to read the article and if that yeah. was the inciting incident for that night or not. Um, Phil, as as he told Mick, had his demons. Mm. Yeah, and then uh, I mean to maybe on on that note too, as um, um, no one person can <laughs> point the finger back at themselves to for the blame. I mean, there's so much as your yes. documentary points out. There was. And it gets back to that Spectre thing about about timing again. Yes, but, exactly. Uh, uh, did the Vikram did that actually air those interv- that interview with him? Yeah, that film. It was called, it's called the Agony and the Ecstasy of Phil Spector. Okay, um, it was on. I think it was on BBC. It was BBC, and, but yeah, I wasn't sure. I couldn't remember. Um, yeah, yeah. It's and, and it's it's a uh, you know he was he was able to speak to Phil. Um, and had a lot more planned to shoot, but yeah. I think he only got that those two interviews. So he basically had to, you know, work with those two interviews and the, or, you know, like kind of the courtroom stuff to piece mm-hmm. his 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 thing together. And yeah, I'm gonna during the trial. Yes, that's right. It was exactly. Uh, I mean, I, 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 was, <laughs> I was about to say something. I'm going to stop it there. But there is a, I mean, he, uh, um, all the people we've mentioned. Uh, we've talked about some stories here that they that are shared in the in the film, but there's more that we haven't even touched on that uh, I think are more. yeah. There's a lot more, uh, hence why it's four four episodes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, even you talk about secondhand and Leonard Cohen. We also Rob had a firsthand experience, which I thought was quite interest an interesting story about recording in the studio with Phil. Spencer. That's right, and we tried yeah. very 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 hard to get first-hand accounts yeah. of both Phil Spector and Lana Clarkson. So we we tried to cut to the truth as as closely as we possibly yeah. could, um, which is challenging when the main subject has passed away. Yeah. Uh, main subjects are no yes. longer yeah. with us. Yeah, definitely. Um, but nonetheless, we tried very hard to hear directly from the people who, who knew those subjects best. Mm. And yes, oh, that exactly. And and Vikram has a similar story, which I think definitely worth. Uh, I thought was quite quite chilling. Um, yeah, there's, one, uh, you know, there's there's these this kind of stories. Theme yeah. in Phil's life about not about control and power and not mm-hmm. wanting to be left alone. Um, and there are women and men throughout Phil's life that have yeah. stories about Phil not wanting them to go home. Yeah. Well, I've got a. Speaking of home, I've got to let you two go uh, here pretty quickly because you've got a, a, 
I, I think, pick up your daughter from school. Yeah, we have uh, a kid we have to get from school. Yeah, so uh, you're long-time collaborators in life and film. Uh, what's, uh, what's next for you two um, after this? We've uh, we've had a, a pretty busy couple of years. Uh, we've had a lot of films that have uh, and series that have come out. We you know we did this Spectre series. We did a, a four part documentary series for Discovery Plus uh, mm-hmm. called The Bond, which was uh, executive produced by uh, Team Downey, Robert Downey Jr. and Susan yeah. Downey. Um, that's on Discovery Plus. That came out earlier this year. I have a Ronnie James Dio documentary that just came out. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> Sorry, sorry, I haven't it, heard. No, I haven't... It, it, what's crazy is it, it, it's, it's <laughs> I haven't heard that name. Incredible like... amount of work. That must... Wait, you are you a Dio fan? No, I can't say I'm a Dio fan, but I'm I'm from San Antonio, which is like one of the heavy metal capitals of the U.S. And Ronnie oh, yeah. James Dio was on on the radio all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. you have to see this movie. I'll, I'll like, send you a link. Yeah. Okay, please you. do. Oh my goodness, that's. Oh so, yeah, this, so we. That, it's the definitive Dio documentary. Well, it, came sure. out, <laughs> it came out. Uh, we did a small theatrical run uh, uh, at the tail end, in, in the beginning of fall. It's currently on Showtime, and then it'll. It's going to be on. Oh, it was released in the UK too. It was. I thought so. Maybe it, maybe I'm mistaken. I don't think it has been yet, but yeah, we're so we're working on it. So that is happening. Okay. And we have a four part docu- documentary series uh, is coming out uh, in probably the spring on AMC. Um, okay. And yeah, we're just we got the next couple things that we're trying to get off the ground and and get going. We so keep busy. We just keep our heads <laughs> down and keep cranking out shit. <laughs> well, I wouldn't Hopefully call it good shit. shit. Good yeah, shit. it's, it's good shit. shit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> We need to qualify that. Well, yes, thank you. <laughs> well, Sheena and Don, it's been a pleasure to have you on uh, Factual really? America. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a. I think we even tried to get you on previously for some, you know, like the Vonnegut uh, one and uh, some of the others. So, uh, but th- I'm glad we finally got you on. So, just to remind our our listeners and viewers, we've been talking with uh, Sheena Joyce and Don Argot, the directors of the new Showtime and Sky documentaries docu series Spectre. Do check it out. I also would like to thank those who helped make this podcast possible. A big shout out to Sam and Joe at Intersound Audio in York, England. A big thanks to Amy Ord, our podcast manager at Alamo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting great guests onto the show and that everything otherwise runs smoothly. Finally, a big thanks to our listeners. Many of you have been with us for four incredible seasons. Please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas, whether it is on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. Please also remember to like us and share us with your friends and family, wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.